so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. As we continue our mini-series here on the podcast about a recent release volume of the Digital Public Square with BNH Academic, today I'm joined by Jeremy Tedesco to talk about his contribution with Christiana Kiefer entitled Content Moderation and Suppressing Speech. Are there limits to talking about sexuality and gender online? Today, Jeremy and I talk about the relationship between private companies and free speech, as well as how Christians can think about the nature of the public square. Jeremy serves as Senior Counsel and Senior Vice President for Corporate Engagement for the Alliance Defending Freedom. In this role, Tedesco leads ADF's effort to combat corporate cancel culture and to build a business ethic that respects free speech, religious freedom, and human dignity. Tedesco was also part of the legal teams that successfully litigated Masterpiece Cape Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, Reed versus the Town of Gilbert, as well as the Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization versus Wynn before the United States Supreme Court. He's a graduate of Regent University School of Law. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square podcast. As we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. What kind of interests you in technology policy and specifically a lot of the the conversation right now kind of swirling around content moderation and free speech? Yeah, well, I've been a First Amendment litigator for years and, you know, suing um, the government when it restricted free speech rights, when it restricted religious freedom. And, uh, you know, as we've moved into the digital public square over the last you know, several decades, but especially over the last several years, very rapidly, it became very clear to us at ADF, to me personally, that the way in which these companies regulated content on their platforms had as much, if not a greater impact on the way people were able to engage around issues that matter. And so it just became a a real passion project for me that happens to have a lot of intersections with the work I've done for decades. Well, and that's why I was so thankful to have you and Christiana Kiefer uh, writing this chapter, because one of the areas that we're seeing kind of where the rubber meets the road in the content moderation and free speech conversation is actually around sexuality issues, especially with kind of the LGBTQ plus movement um, and the power and kind of the influence, especially even the corporate influence on that movement. Um, It's very interesting to see, as you say, that 
that we have this rise of this digital public square, but it's not exactly like public squares of the past, but it's also, it's quite different in the sense of these companies, these are privately held corporations, companies. In the same respect, they're also having such a large influence over our public conversation and the way that we communicate and the ideas we hear and engage with. And so there's some really, really interesting questions. Uh, So for listeners' sake, I encourage you to go check out the volume, not only this really helpful chapter, um, but we have a number of folks coming in to kind of weigh in on some of this. A lot of these issues feel novel at times, um, but I think as well as something that you and Christiana did really well in this chapter is saying, look, we can appeal to First Amendment kind of case law. And we can appeal to the history here because the issues we're facing, quote, aren't that novel. It's just maybe the medium in which they're happening. And so at the beginning of your contribution, you talk a lot about the role of Christians in a pluralistic society and kind of talking about the reason why we seek after ideas of free speech, as well as the voice of faith kind of in our civil public discourse. I wanted to see if you could expand a little bit on why this matters for Christians. I think for some, the ideas of like free speech and that kind of content moderation seem kind of at arm's length. But can you speak a little bit of why this is so important for Christians to be advocating for these type of freedoms um, in our increasingly digital public square? Yeah, there's probably, you know, there's lots of reasons, but maybe two critical ones are, one, we need to be able to share the gospel freely. We need to be able to present the world with the message of Christ and uh, his salvation that he offers through his death on the cross. And we need, need to be able to do that freely. And here's the thing, you know, the a lot of the censorship that's happening right now related to issues of sexuality and things like that, I mean, they ultimately rooted in the fact that people find our views and, and you know, more traditional or biblically based views on those matters offensive. I mean, that's really the nub of it. Well, there's probably nothing more offensive than, you know, the message of the gospel and that we are sinners who need a savior to be reconciled with God and that Christ was that savior. And that he's the only one and true path to heaven. And so, you know, that's a deeply offensive message. And to preserve our freedom to be able to express that in the most, you know, some of the most influential and wide reaching avenues of communication like social media and other technological platforms is essential. I think the other thing is that Christians, you know, we have a public witness on matters of social and political, you know, import. We, We need to engage in a very holistic way on, you know, social issues, policy matters. And we need to bring our biblical witness to bear on those things in persuasive ways uh, and convince people that, you know, our sense of the good and of the right and the moral and the true is actually good for everyone and that humans will flourish and society will flourish if our country, our nation, and the world really is based on those principles. So, you know, we have to preserve our ability to express those ideas and, it's unfortunate, but I think we have to reckon with the fact that a lot of these social media companies are either themselves hostile to a lot of those beliefs and convictions, or probably more likely, there are m- many folks who are trying to, and in many ways, successfully weaponizing those corporations against those values, external actors, activists, and even some internal activists as well. And as, we, as we've seen with the Twitter files, you know, the government can even you know, try to manipulate content moderation standards of social media companies to skew public debate on on issues of national importance. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's one of the things that's interesting is one who's done a lot of work alongside these companies, actually encouraging them to have better policies in terms of free expression, specifically religious freedom, which I find fascinating. uh, Because when you look at many of these policies, they'll talk about all of these different freedoms and all of these different protected classes. And often they very rarely will ever talk about people of faith. But you bring up a really good point because something we've talked a lot about here on the podcast over the years, but specifically with this volume, is that nothing is really neutral, Uh, that technology is forming and shaping us. There are deeply held values that none of us even come to the idea of a public square. Nobody, whether you're a Christian or not or a theist or not, come to these big important issues without our deeply held beliefs. But somehow, and some for some reason, people of faith are told, you have to kind of check your faith at the door if you're going to enter into the public square. But nobody else, as Jonathan Lehman once said, nobody else has to check their little G gods. But when we, ha- we have to kind of check our, our belief in a big G God in some sense. And I think that's a really kind of fascinating conversation that, you know, I do a lot in my own work. Um, we, something we do here at the URLC and even in my teaching, talking about the role of religion in the public square is that nothing is truly neutral. The question that's interesting to me in kind of this debate with the digital public square, and some people don't love that idea because the public square is kind of a government-owned space, but you do have this interesting kind of note with privately held companies that historically um, also have their own kind of First Amendment protections in terms of speech and the things they host and the things they promote. But we're in an interesting time where you have these companies that are highly influential over the nature of communication in terms of selling. I mean, one of the examples you point out in terms of Amazon and Ryan Anderson's book that I want to ask you in a little bit more about that situation. But you have these companies that wield such an outsized influence, yet they actually, in terms of case law, typically have free speech rights. And so when you get into this question of how does, what role does the government play, if any, I wanted to see if you could help kind of play that out a little bit. What's unique, maybe not novel per se, but maybe unique about the nature of the digital public square today as opposed to kind of, you know, free speech violations at a a publicly held university or something like that? What is the difference? What is some kind of the unique factors or variables that we need to be taking into account? Yeah, the critical distinction is what you're pointing to there in your your question, which is these are privately run companies that happen to be speech platforms and just happen to be, you know, the probably the most um, used speech platforms right now and for the foreseeable future. If people want to engage in debate and dialogue on, you know, the issues of the day, they basically conceive of themselves of doing that on social media platforms. So the fact that they're private companies matters a lot because my work as a First Amendment litigator in the traditional public square of old streets, sidewalks, parks, you know, municipal buildings with, with, you know, meeting event rooms, churches that want to meet at schools, all those kinds of things. We could re- immediately resort to the First Amendment when the government was the one censoring the speech or engaging in religious discrimination because the First Amendment applies to the government. It doesn't apply to private corporations. And so the real complicating factor for us, and I think for not just Christians, but for our, our country and really the world, is that we don't have the same tools in the toolkit to battle the censorship. We can't sue these companies, in most instances, under a First Amendment theory. It's actually a little bit more, perhaps a lot more risky to regulate them through state or or federal legislation, because like you're saying, they have their own First Amendment rights. And the reality is there's a high amount of open questions on where their First Amendment rights begin and end in this context. There's a lot of very compelling arguments that they can be treated as common carriers, and then this essentially 
required by the government to have equal carry rules, essentially viewpoint neutrality rules when it comes to speech. Some states have already tried to impose those on the platforms. Those cases are pending review at the Supreme Court right now, Texas and Florida. And so there's a lot to be you know, figured out from a legal perspective. And I think we're going to continue to see, especially the states, you know, try to use some of the powers they have to rein in some of the censorship on these platforms. Our chapter doesn't really talk about that. It really talks about the fact that, okay, well, these companies are committing to be forums for open speech and dialogue. They want to give people an opportunity to express their views. As Twitter says, without barriers. Well, there are massive amounts of barriers. If you really want a free speech forum, you ought to look at the the best standards the world has to offer on how to run a viewpoint neutral speech forum that avoids censorship on the basis of content or viewpoint. And that's the First Amendment and the case law that's interpreted over the years. So, you know, we're not saying the First Amendment applies to these companies. We are saying that they they lay down important guideposts that the companies should follow. And we, Christians and otherwise, should advocate if we care about free speech, that these companies adopt those standards. As you were you know, pointing out, and I'll just say that the content moderation standards at these companies, if you were to apply a First Amendment kind of jurisprudential lens to them, they are dead on arrival in almost any litigation that you'd file under the First Amendment. They're just full of viewpoint-based, vague policies that give Twitter, Facebook, you know, Google employees essentially unfettered discretion to decide who can speak and who can't, what topics are allowed and what topics are disallowed. And that's a real problem. And that's where the problem's coming from on the censorship related to sexuality and gender. But you know, across the board, we're talking about misinformation or, you know, all these other different issues that are in the news right now. Yeah, I know your chapter, the chapter that you and Christiana wrote here, obviously we've kind of focused on sexuality and gender issues, which is kind of uh, ground zero in many ways for a lot of these content moderation debates. Interestingly enough, as you brought up, and we could talk about that in a minute, um, is the rise of misinformation and disinformation. That's actually something I wrote about in the book as well. Kind of how do we think through some of those ideas? How do we define what is truly misinformation and disinformation? It's not just speech or information we don't like. It has to be something that's actually untrue. Uh, something that's actually false information is as Christians, we're people of truth. Uh, we care about truth. We should care about truth and promote truth in all avenues. But kind of drilling down, I think you rightfully point out because one of the interesting, um, often very vague policies that happens in these conversations is around hate speech. Now, something that you all address a little bit, uh, Brooke Medina also had a chapter on hate speech and thinking through these ideas. And hate speech, yeah, I encourage you to go listen to that podcast uh, for listeners' sake. Uh, that was a really helpful episode that Brooke did, kind of talking about a lot, kind of ending essentially where you and Christiana end in the sense of, hey, look, we have case law. Like, we actually have good standards here that you should be seeking to apply. But hate speech is a very ill-defined, often, concept, much less when you break down these hate speech policies. Because by the time, you know, the first kind of level on most of these policies, I think most people would agree with. The second level, you start to get some ifs, and I'm not really sure how this plays out. But the third level, it often feels like anything I don't like is actually considered hate speech, uh, which kind of runs completely contrary to free speech doctrine, especially here in the United States. But one of those actually comes down to a lot of times is the sexuality and gender conversation. So we mentioned earlier uh, Ryan T. Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, um, and kind of the the uproar that happened just a couple years ago, about the time that we were starting to put together this volume about his book and Amazon. So I wanted to see, can you tell us a little bit about that situation, what happened, um, and then kind of where things kind of currently sit in terms of 
that book being delisted in many ways kind of straight up deplatformed from Amazon, not available for sale, even though it's a very sound, helpful book that helps us to navigate some of these things in a really ironic spirit. Yeah, well, Ryan Anderson is you know, a great scholar. His book is provides a, a wonderful scholarly basis for the biblical conviction around um, the differences between the sexes and the consequences, kind of human cost of embracing gender identity ideology. So it's a, it's a really great book and very thoughtful and um, not incendiary in any way. Ryan's a very thoughtful guy. It was on sale on Amazon's platform for, I think it was around three years. It was readily available. People were buying the book there. And then the debate over the Equality Act heated up back in, I think it was 2021. And really right at the height of the national debate around the Equality Act, Ryan started engaging in some speech related to that and just explaining why the Equality Act was an unwise policy decision at the federal level. And so Amazon just decided at some point during the height of that debate to delist his book, cancel his book, to digitally burn it, however you want to describe it, um, and no longer make it available. And so, you know, that's hugely concerning. Amazon has 50% of the book sale market overall. I think it's 75% of the digital book sale market. It's probably more than that now. I wrote the chapter a couple of years ago. I doubt they've lost that position, maybe gained some. And so when Amazon censors a book, it's not a small thing. They're the biggest bookseller, you know, over 50% of the books uh, that people buy. And so when that when the biggest seller of books doesn't want to sell a book because they disagree with its content or you know, don't like what it has to say about a certain issue, that sends a message to authors, to distributors, to publishers. I mean, what, what publisher or distributor is going to want to pick up a book that the biggest bookstore in the world doesn't want to sell? But there's a risk that that could happen. And so that's why, you know, and, and Amazon has you know, policies in place that allow them to bar book sales they find hateful or promote hateful ideas. I can't remember exactly how their policy is termed, um, but they reserve the right to do that. And, you know, we don't think that's a wise policy for a bookseller. I mean, trying to be the arbiter of truth when you, you're selling books on your platform or at your bookstore. Obviously, Christian booksellers, and there's, there's people who have a viewpoint around their books bookstore, they can sell what they want and they can make those editorial decisions. But Amazon is just a pass between the customer's and the distributors. And so it's really problematic that Amazon took, you know, that action. And it's not the first time they did it. And, you know, I think it's really important and incumbent upon us to convince corporations that they need to stop that kind of censorship because it's very risky. And it's not risky just for us. I mean, I think our side is very much the target of these things right now. But the reality is once you embed this kind of politicized approach to providing business services or financial services, if you want to talk about that, it's bad for everyone because it's going to be weaponized against the next, you know, point of view or ideology that's managed to get disfavored status. And the cultural winds shift pretty quickly on those kinds of questions. So I guess to drill down on that, just kind of as a, another question there, how does that differ in terms of Amazon versus something like Baronelle Stutzman and her flower company? Because I think some people come and say, look, we say that the uh, privately held kind of companies, whether it's a, a florist, a bake shop, a creative agency, shouldn't have to carry speech or promote speech or engage in actions that are contrary to their deeply held beliefs. Often on marriage issues is where we're seeing kind of the rubber meet the road. What's different between kind of that idea of a smaller kind of privately held 
company versus a larger one? What is the distinction in your mind and why one is not right, but the other is? Because I know some people kind of drill down and say, well, that seems inconsistent. How would you address that? Yeah, there's there's probably two big cons- distinctions. One of them, which I've, I've already essentially uh, referenced, but I'll get back. I'll, I'll say it again. But the first one is they're not speaking. Amazon is not speaking. They are a clearinghouse for other people's speech. And so people like Baronel Stutzman or Jack Phillips, our, our cake designer artist, or Laurie Smith, who right now has a case at the Supreme Court, who's a web designer. Those folks are engaged in cr- the creative process of actually creating speech and expressing an idea. And so the law there is forcing them to create and promote a message they disagree with. With Amazon, they're just selling books on their platform. They're essentially a go-between between the customers and the book distributors or publishers. And so they're not speaking. That's number one. And the other thing is just their, and it's not the only, but another critical thing is their market power and the monopolistic, almost gatekeeper function they have when it comes to accessing books. And like I said before, the impact they can have, the chilling impact they can have on the book market, distributors, publishers, authors, when Amazon, the biggest bookseller in the world, decides "Mm, your topic's too hot for sale or your view's not going to be acceptable on our platform. So those are two critical distinctions. There's others, but I think those are the two biggest ones. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I encourage listeners to go check out the chapter because you and Christiana do a really good job kind of laying out the issues. You also address questions of Section 230, which is coming back into the news, especially uh, with a couple cases before the Supreme Court kind of touching on 230 directly. It seems over the years that kind of ebbs and flows in terms of interest and kind of intrigue and reforming or repealing and all sorts of conversations surrounding 230, which I encourage you. We recently had a podcast with David French talking about that. I encourage listeners to check that out as well as we kind of dig into 230. Um, But one of the questions I wanted to end with was talking about um, a little bit of the context for listeners' sake is that when you write a book like this, I mean, as you've kind of already referenced, we were writing this and putting this together in like 2020, end of 2020, beginning of 2021, kind of throughout. It goes through a, long, a lengthy editorial process, which is one of the things I like about publishing um, is that it's not kind of knee-jerk gut-level reactions to things that as they're happening, there's that kind of thoughtful, in-depth kind of analysis. Um, and you guys do such a good job on that in your chapter. But given the length, uh, and the f- speed at which the technology industry and as well as by nature technology policy shifts. What are some things that, as you've kind of already referenced in terms of misinformation, that was kind of new in some sense about uh, content moderation. What are some of those type of issues that you're seeing now uh, that if you were to go back and maybe rewrite or add to a chapter, what kind of things would you be talking about in terms of sexuality and gender online today? Yeah. So there's two things that I think are very interesting. One I I referenced earlier, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it here is the Twitter files. And, you know, when we wrote this chapter, there were a lot of people even back then who were concerned and saw some concerning markers of perhaps the government at the state or federal level were trying to manipulate conversations in the public square by way of these private companies. Now we know that those things are happening. You know, Twitter files have made it very clear that uh, government officials at the federal level were you know, essentially using Twitter's content standards to flag user content on issues that were being debated, you know, very important social issues and political issues that were being debated on the platform. So the fact that that's happening, we can't assume that that's only happening in one context and on one issue. We've, we've seen, you know, 
motions at the state and at the federal level to set up disinformation boards on gender identity. You know, there's been pushes to restrict content related to life and pregnancy centers and things like that from the government. And so I think, you know, a healthy skepticism and concern that maybe the same thing we're seeing in the Twitter files is happening or could very easily happen on some of these core issues for people of faith. You know, I think that that's something that wasn't going on when we wrote the chapters going on now. And the interesting thing is that it also ups the ante on the First Amendment protections that we have. Because bottom line is when private companies, you know, act in complicity with the government in a censorship scheme, they're no longer treated as private actors, at least in that context. So their Twitter has already been sued a couple times for cooperating with the government and censoring content. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I think that's a good thing because it's a good counterweight to the pressure on the other side to adopt these vague standards and censor speech that people don't like. The second thing that I've found fascinating is, is the advent of AI technology and the search functionality it has, chat GPT, so much buzz around that. And as you were talking about earlier, there's no technology, these things, they're not neutral. The way in which these technologies are built, programmed, designed, has an enormous impact on how they operate, the kind of answers they provide to people. And I've seen a lot of pretty concerning stuff as I've seen some people say, I asked Jet GPT this or that. And so the way in which these new technologies could be used to manipulate search results, to drive a particular narrative or political ideology is something that we should be very concerned about. And we should also be concerned about them being designed in a way that suppresses Christian speech on a whole host of issues. And so, yeah, I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I think it's something that we really need to be paying attention to over the next few years. Yeah, obviously, uh, there's so much that we could be talking about here and that we should be talking about. And hopefully, uh, kind of the the heart behind all of the contributors, and especially as me as the editor of the volume, is we hope this sparks a conversation, that it pushes the conversation along to say, hey, we need more people thinking about these issues. We need more people involved on these issues. And I just want to say from the ERLC and for myself uh, that we're really grateful for your work, Jeremy, Uh, the work that you're doing on corporate engagement, the work that you're doing there at ADF. Uh, We've long partnered with ADF and are really grateful for you all. Um, And just really grateful to have you and Christiana to be part of a project like this. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thanks, Jason. We appreciate your work, too, at the ERLC and everything you're doing. So thanks very much for this opportunity. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Jeremy and learn more about he and Christiana's contribution to the Digital Public Square project in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing issues of the public square today, as well as stay up to date in the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.